when you open the door for somebody else. Welcome in to the Vaccine Conversation with Melissa and Dr. Bob. It is another uh, early morning episode for us. And I'm excited to talk about this topic. <laughs> I think we're more awake now than... than the... Really? I'm less awake now. Oh, are you? Yeah. I mean, yes, I'm super awake, ready to go. <laughs> well, th- this is a, a, I love this topic, and this is a very fascinating topic. Um, the idea of uh, do children uh, spread coronavirus? Are they you know, largely responsible or even partly responsible for uh, propagating this outbreak? You know, what role do they play in that? And what does the actual research show on this? Because they, they actually have some pretty good research on this. And the basic conclusion is children are very minimally responsible for spreading COVID. The, the, you know, the amount of COVID that gets spread from child to child or from child to adults is so minimal that it's only a tiny little fraction of, of the overall spread of this. And um, we're going to go through the data with you guys that, uh, that demonstrates that. And I think it's pretty, uh, pretty fascinating. I think so. You think <laughs> do you so too? I do. I do. Right? This concept. So we just we just spent an episode talking about this Kawasaki-like syndrome, this um, multi-system inflammation syndrome in children that the mystery illness everyone's concerned about as it relates to possible COVID exposure and this hidden risk. We thought kids were safe, but oh, turns out, oh no, they're not. And how could this factor into whether or not we need to make policies to keep schools closed? I've been looking at, I think it was back in March, I think it was Johns Hopkins when we were looking at that data that basically talked about, um, no, it was the World Health Organization um, that talked about there was not a, the first study that they did, it was from China, there was not a single case of exposure that was from a child to an adult in a household. And this was back in early March, I think, that they had come out saying, this was this is not the way it was spreading. Right. And I remember we talked about that. We said, hey, look at this information. It was during a Facebook Live, in fact. And then within those next couple of weeks, this huge but asymptomatic carrier argument came yeah, out. Yeah. And what they basically went on to conclude, which stayed, the whole course of this so far has stayed, is that children are silent vectors of this disease, they could be completely asymptomatic. You'll never know they even had it, but they're carrying it. And therefore they could be giving it to you at any time and to the grandparents and to stay Mm -hmm. away. And this prompted people to sever, literally sever relationships between grandparents and grandchildren because of this concept that even though kids aren't really at risk from this, they're the ones spreading it and carrying it and they're risking everybody else. And I told you at the very beginning, you know, because of this message, there were people walking across the street to pass us because I'm there with my two kids. And I think that people had literally developed a fear of children and that fear of children has continued. I mean, there are grandparents that have not seen their grandkids in two full months thinking it's the right thing to do. It's the safe thing to do. You never know when a child is carrying it. And I want us to do a whole separate podcast on asymptomatic carriers and transmission because it's a huge topic right now. But I want to put my own non-medical 
opinion here, um, just my researched opinion, is that when it comes to being contagious for something, you're not going to be a child without symptoms for two months that could be contagious at any moment because you have this virus just sitting in you, and therefore you can infect anybody for six weeks of time, eight weeks of time. That's really just not how it works. You can be pre-symptomatic, you can be contagious for a period of time, but it's a small window of time. And if these children have already been exposed and have already had it, they've developed antibodies and they're no longer contagious Mm -hmm. at that point, which means they would be safe to be around grandparents. We don't know how many children have had it, probably a bunch, probably a lot as we're realizing there's this, you know, much bigger level of population spread than we thought. And so it's odd that we've got children now that are potentially risky this entire time. It's like, what if they were exposed back in March, February, January, last December? They could have already had it, had their antibodies, and they literally didn't have to be away from anybody this entire time, let alone be away from each other in a school setting. But right away, schools got closed. Okay, this is early March. Schools got closed. Schools were closed also uh, in parts of China and in parts of the Asian countries that first started this, but they were not closed in Taiwan, I believe. Uh, They were closed in Singapore, not closed in Taiwan. And we mentioned it on our podcast how there was no difference between transmission Mm -hmm. between those two countries as it related to their outbreaks. And so that was kind of the first little seed of like, well, maybe kids aren't, you know, and then, and then the Swedish epidemiologist that used to be the former state epidemiologist, and I put him on my, the video on my page, says, uh, kids are the ones who spread influenza. They are the primary vectors of spreading the influenza disease, but they have not been shown to be the ones that he had said this, you know, two months ago, which is the reason why Sweden decided not to close their schools. They didn't close any schools for under 16 years old. And now we've got places like Denmark who have reopened schools over a month ago. Zero outbreaks. There have been zero outbreaks there. There has been nothing, no big crazy outbreak uh, in any of those regions that opened up the schools. Again, I think the Netherlands, they opened up schools as well. So we come to this discussion of what does it mean to be asymptomatic? Can children be putting everybody at risk if we put them back into the population? Was closing schools the right path? Is it going to do anything to keep schools closed over this next year, et cetera? And that's, right. the, that's what we're going to go into today. Right. Yeah. We have a, a couple of articles. The title of, I think, the most interesting article is Children Are Not COVID-19 Super Spreaders time to go back to school. And this was published in a peer-reviewed research journal, Archives of Disease in Childhood. And it was just recent. It was May 5th. So it was a very brand new article. Mm-hmm. And it was written by two infectious disease specialists, one who's a infe- pediatric infectious disease specialist, another doctor who's peds infectious disease and immunology, and the director of research at this uh, uh, British um, hospital and, and medical school. So very great credentials on, on these two doctors. Their take-home message is that, yeah, children might spread this a little bit. They might be a tiny bit responsible for spreading the, the virus, but it's, such, it's so minimal compared to the, um, uh, the number of adults that are spreading it and how adults are going to spread it much more readily than children that it is definitely time to go back to school time to reopen schools. And 
you could even argue that schools can be reopened without having like a new normal. Right, you know, right. And they can just you know go back to normal living. Well, in Sweden, they weren't wearing masks. They didn't have the six feet apart distance. They didn't have plexiglass in between. Yeah, they they yeah. didn't have any of those adjustments. They yeah. let kids be in school as is. Yeah. So they they ask a couple of key questions um, in their in their study. They say number one. Are the low rates of confirmed COVID infection in children, is it because they're not becoming infected? Or is it usually just such a benign disease that you're just not seeing it, you're not recognizing it because they're barely symptomatic or very briefly symptomatic? And then if children are infected uh, or if they are getting sick, and, and we know they are getting infected, are they infectious to each other and they're infectious to adults? And and if so, for how long? These are like really critical questions mm-hmm. they need to answer. And so they, they basically, you know, they, they use the flu example, like you just mm-hmm. said. We know children are the primary drivers of flu outbreaks, and and we presumed that would be true for COVID, and that's why we close schools. Mm. But the evidence does not support that. And so they they go through some studies, and they they say like early data out of China showed. Um, showed there were similar attack rates in children and adults in households. That was early Mm -hmm. data. So they kind of thought that could be a problem. But they say now with all the new data we have, that has evolved. And we we now know children are not spreading it to the same degree as as other people, um, as as adults are in, in households. Um, what yeah? What did did you have anything interesting on this article that you wanted to? I did, of course. Uh, I emphasize underlined the same thing as it relates to mm-hmm. the key questions because yeah. I think those are the questions that probably should have been asked and potentially answered right. before we had this right. universal school closure. Maybe maybe closing schools for a couple of weeks until they could answer these questions. But I feel like we had answers to these questions a long time ago. Yeah, and. This is not just about right now because this information comes out now. They're already discussing not having school look normal at all for this whole next school year. And we've got the data now in May, months before fall even starts, and they're already talking about not having a normal experience. We have data now in May that says, like you you just mentioned, this is not a concern for the spread of this pandemic. I have another article to, to cite from. Um, But I think the most interesting thing in the article here that you shared with me was this discussion of the case studies. Yeah, exactly. The case studies that they found, and I'll just briefly um, mention them, and then you can go back to the, the rest of the points that you have on this. The, there was a case study in France where there was a COVID-positive child that had exposure to more than 100 children uh, in different schools, he was in different schools and a ski resort. And uh, in that case study, there was mm-hmm. another case study. And, and, and in that case, there were zero additional cases that came as a result of that one child with the exposure to over 100 people. Right. There was an additional cluster that they found um, uh, in Australia. Now, this is interesting, New South Wales. So they had 863 contacts, okay, total, between the staff and the students. There were nine children and nine adults that had the initial cases. So a total of 18 people with the potential of 863 contacts in a school environment. 
And uh, there were no, again, no exposures to the 863 people. And this right. is not the first time, too. There was uh, an, an another, another study that they did with over 700, 800 contacts also that they traced from the initial person and not a single other person had been de- even in close exposure. And this even says, even with close contact, that, mm-hmm. um, that there was not the secondary transmission, which right. is the thing that we're worried right. about, right? And, and it's not showing up. Right. And, and so those two clusters I thought were really interesting. Um, and then, of course, the original, like I said, thing from Johns Hopkins, which talks about there, you really only have about a 10% chance of transmitting in a household, in a household with a right. positive COVID member. And that, again, is coming from adult to child. Right. And then in a casual work environment, which you would assume is kind of like maybe a school environment, a 0.5% chance in a, in a work environment. So we know less than 1% chance of spreading in a work environment. You can imagine it's very low for children. Here they're showing they have not come across any circumstance where they can find a child being the uh, index case right. of an outbreak. Right. Is that surprising to you? Right. It, it, it actually is very surprising because we've... We keep equating this kind of like to the flu. It's going to spread around just like the flu. But in this respect, COVID is definitely not being transmitted around just like the flu. It's being, you know, it's mm-hmm. it's the opposite. You know, they they talk about a study out of the uh, Netherlands that that collected a lot of data, and it said their their data from the Netherlands suggests that that COVID is mainly spread between adults from adult to adult. And from adults to the children in a house, but not not vice versa, not children to adults. Um, they talk here about uh, data out of Iceland, in that all their preliminary data when they're collecting um, uh, you know case information out of Iceland, they found that there were no children under ten years old found to be positive. Um, in all their initial data collection, right. uh, compared with uh, they found about. 0.8% of the general population was positive, but no kids under 10 were positive in the, in the initial Iceland studies. In Italy, where they found um, they had actually screened 86% of the population in, in Italy, in, in one city in Italy, mm-hmm. um, they found um, screening 86%, they found no children under 10 were positive. They screened 86% of an entire village. And this is, I'm guessing, nasal no swabs. Kids were positive. Right, yeah. so that would be current infection, meaning yeah, kids were exactly. not currently infected and spreading it. Kids might have had positive antibodies have already been exposed, but right. they were no longer infectious, which right. is the thing that everybody's worried about. Right, exactly. Um, and uh, and, and, the, and they, this was, they, there were a lot of children living and households in that town in Italy with, you know, infected adults. Right. Not a single child tested positive, um, screening, you know, almost the entire uh, village. And they, they did some uh, contract, contact tracing in Japan right. um, and during the outbreaks and found lower attack rates in children. Mm-hmm. And in China, they, they ended up finding, even though they initially thought children were, were going to be significant spreaders, follow-up data from China showed, you know, much lower uh, attack rates among children. Um, and so their their conclusion, based on the evidence that they have, is that children could be significantly less likely to become infected than adults. Now that's all important. Kids, it's important for people around. to understand right. that right. that children 
I have this highlighted as well. Evidence is therefore emerging that children could be significantly less likely to be infected than adults. Right. Not more likely, which is the way that they look at children as it relates to typical virus and, and spreading in schools. Yeah. Less likely. Why are schools closed? Yeah, I know. I don't know why. People might argue, well, we have to you know, protect all the you know, immunocompromised kids right. and all that. Uh, these infectious disease, you know, uh, pediatricians, they actually emphasize um, that there, there's, there's very limited data so far on, on like how this might be affecting immunocompromised kids. But the data that they have so far might show that it's not really impacting immunocompromised kids much. So they say many pediatric specialists are concerned that a blanket assumption that immunosuppressed children of any kind are are all at increased risk. Um, And that mistake will cause considerable long-term educational and social harm to these children. Because he says uh, we don't yet have good data that's showing that, you know, immunosuppressed kids are going to do worse with this disease um, like we know they'll do worse with measles. But let alone even healthy kids, though. That's the thing right. is healthy right. kids are being treated like immunocompromised kids with the way that they've yeah. created policies yeah. to shield them from contact with any other child. And that discussion about social harm and and mental harm and emotional yeah. harm that's yeah. as a result of this, that's not really been a part of the debate on whether or not schools should stay open or closed. Right. And it should be a public part of the debate. This should be part of the briefings that we're getting. They should be honest and say, you know what? There is a risk to keeping these schools closed and we need to weigh this risk because on one hand, blah, 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 on the other hand, but they're ignoring it as if this is not a reality. And you have other places like Sweden saying, we make policy decisions based on evidence. Right. If it's evidence-based, that's what we followed. There was no evidence, like you're saying, there is no data to say that closing schools was going to help this outbreak and was going to save lives or whatever. And because there was no evidence they knew there were going to always be these unintended consequences that again nobody here is talking about in our country but why subject a whole bunch of children we're talking millions and millions and millions of children in our country to all these unintended consequences when there is no real evidence to show it was necessary and you know people might say it's only been a couple of weeks but i'm telling you just what's happened in the last couple of months you know eight weeks Just the eight weeks of being out of school, being in a home environment with, again, potentially risky and dangerous circumstances, not all parents are designed to be home full-time with our children. Not all parents are designed to homeschool, teach, and and supplement and provide help for the education through these remote learning and Zoom meetings and whatever it is. Not all children are safe at home, okay? You've got children that are being isolated. Not all children have siblings, You have children that have been isolated from people. That's just number one. Number two, they're placed in an environment of fear. They are told if they go out, it's dangerous. They are told if they talk to other people, it's dangerous. If they see their friends, it's dangerous. They are now not even allowed to go out to grocery stores. They can't go to restaurants. They know their regular life has been interrupted. So not only are they isolated from social contact uh, and their learning, they are placed in a shroud of fear. And in some households, this fear is pretty, runs pretty deep. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I don't particularly believe in a fear-based culture as it relates to this entire pandemic. And I've tried to be really honest 
in a way with my children about what's going on. Um, I don't believe in putting masks on children. I don't believe in wearing masks when we go out for walks and things like that. So that's not part of our life. And yet, even in this circumstance, my own daughter, who's six and a half, you know, tells me yesterday that she touched this toy that she found and is it going to make her sick now? Mm, and yeah. and she's outside never having worn a mask. She sees other people wearing masks and she sees and can feel the fear culture that we're living in, mm-hmm. and especially as it relates to children. So she is now indirectly affected because it's not in our household. She hasn't seen me sanitize a single thing. We don't use Purell. We don't sit here and, and use alcohol um, you know, cleaners on everything. She has not seen me do that once in eight weeks, and she has already developed a level of fear and mm-hmm. hypersensitivity to what if she gets sick? What if she touches something? And she's not even in the households that are what I'm describing to you that I know right, exist. Right, right. So you can imagine a child is taken away from any other outside influence. They're stuck into one microcosm of fear-based culture, probably with the news on a lot of the time. Yeah, yeah. And they're getting all of these subliminal messages, and they are being changed forever. People think it's only a couple of weeks. They don't understand how children and their brains work. This kind of stuff is permanent, makes permanent changes. This kind of stuff, and, and I know this is a little slightly off topic here, but this kind of stuff to me can change the way children interact with each other, interact with their family, interact with their friends, their, themselves, how they'll choose relationships relationships in the future because of their security, safety that has now been mm-hmm. threatened. And they've been forced to feel that way. Like this, I equate this to being in a wartime situation because that's what it feels like, but we're not at war. Right. And this virus is not killing people the way war does. And we have put our entire society into this place. And even in a number of eight weeks, the mask wearing, children seeing this everywhere, it's scary. It Mm -hmm. is scary. And it feels like this is not normal. And this is not regular life. And this is not what our intuition guides us to do as as we relate to each other. So people that think... Our decision to have closed schools, which may have been the only normal thing that could have existed right now for these children, it might have been the one thing that countered all of these negative messaging messages that we see. We've now taken that away from them, and we've doubled down on their isolation, fear, panic, disconnection. And if you don't think that we're going to see years and years of problems related to this, you are absolutely naive. Mm -hmm. And as a policymaker and somebody in charge of a government, you know, in charge of the government in our country or, you know, even on a state level, you have to be thinking of these things. You better be damn sure that that data is extremely clear that this is necessary and this is the last ditch effort and we don't want to have to do this, but this is the only mm-hmm. choice because this is so deadly and this is so dangerous. This is the only way to save our society. Yeah. You better be damn sure that that's the conclusion that you come to based on data and evidence because what we are showing that we showed months ago is that data isn't there. And one day we are going to come out of this saying this was the worst choice that we made. We literally mm-hmm. had outside of all the devastation to adults. And we know that that's there too, also not being talked about. Right. You know, we talked about abuse, unemployment, suicides, uh, poverty. Outside of that, 
just what we've done to children in, in such a small bit of time is going to literally have such a huge impact. And study after study is showing us there's no cause for it. And yet just right. a week ago at the Senate committee, Dr. Fauci's literally coming up there going, hey, this new potential Kawasaki disease thing is yeah. something to think about. Yeah. We should look at maybe not having schools next year at all yeah. and keep this remote learning. Parents are drowning. And I can guarantee you parents listening right now, our listeners who may be very aware, very conscious, very uh, maybe into attachment parenting, they want to be there with their children, maybe they even already homeschool. But this next level of what we've had to deal with, I know is stressing them. Mm-hmm. It is they, Some parents are literally about to break. They're yeah. about to break and it's only been eight weeks. To put this kind of stress on families to me is, it's inconceivable. And I, I just feel like now, granted, I'm a sociology major, just, you know, we talk about human behavior and discuss how human behavior gets impacted by things. But I am so disappointed that our country has not had an honest discussion about this because I've worked with kids for 20 years. I truly understand what is going to happen as a result of this. I see what happens in my own home, even trying to be the best I can be on yeah. this. This is just so sad to see this data come in and reaffirm what we've been saying and show this was never necessary. And and we're going to have to pick up the pieces for so many years. Yeah. And sorry to go off on a yeah. on that kind of topic, but you know what? That has to be talked about. Yeah. That needs to be, this can't even just be about asymptomatic transmission, possibility, blah, blah, blah. We need to say, okay, okay, that's on one side. There's all, there are always two sides. What's on the other side? How heavy is this going to be? And right. let's look at that scale on right. the end and see which one we're willing right. to accept. Because the way that they portray this in the media is there is only one side. The one side is dangerous yeah. virus killing people, kids risk, blah, blah, blah. They're not even showing us the other side. Right. And the other side is like a silent epidemic that's happening that nobody's paying attention to. And it's really, really sad. And I know parents listening know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. And I, I really hope this can be start becoming part of the conversation where people that are thinking critically can get past mainstream media and start having a deeper discussion on this yeah. because we're talking about tens of millions of children just in our country. That is not a small number. Mm-mm. And that number is much larger than the number of new cases we're seeing every day yeah. and the number yeah. of deaths that we've even seen from this virus. Yeah, yeah and I know um, some of our listeners uh, might, maybe their kids right now are doing okay. I mean, and I see a lot of comments on social media where people kind of counter that whole argument by saying, well, yeah, it's just one or two months. My kids are fine. My kids love being at home. You know, we're spending all this great time together. And maybe temporarily some people are that way. And I've seen comments. I almost wonder if they're, if those comments are, are like motivated with an agenda, you know, to try to keep things closed. But so, yeah, so maybe some people are doing okay with this temporarily. What my fear is, and what you might not realize if you feel like you are doing okay right now is if this, if there ends up being like a new normal in our society mm. that everyone's going to accept that that and we don't return to you know complete normalcy again and there's some like sort of permanent change in schools permanent change in you know neighborhood life you know what what if it, this ends up being like we all start wearing masks everywhere like like is common in some of the asian countries um if if we come out of this somehow having society ch- being changed for the worse in some sort of negative way 
then those people that are saying, yeah, my kids are fine now, they're not going to be saying that if, you know, this ends up, you know, hurting us in the long run in ways that we can't foresee. And so I think that's, to me, what the greater danger is, is we're complacent right now because you think you can handle, you know, six, eight weeks of, of shutdown. But um, what is life going to be like when we, you know, when we try to return to normal and our government doesn't let us? And our government keeps trying to, and the media keep trying to like feed the agenda that there is going to be a new normal. Everyone needs to be quiet and accept it. That's what life is like now. And th that's my, that's my biggest fear. And I think uh, that's why people need to also wake up and, and start having these conversations. Well, I personally call BS on all those people that you yeah. or the handful of people you've seen yeah. that posted that said they're doing okay. I think honestly, I think it's BS. And the reason I think it's BS is because it could be what you're saying as far as the agenda could be not so much to convince everyone, let's keep the lockdown, but more to convince themselves they're doing okay with this. Yeah. Because I mm -hmm. think a lot of times on Facebook and moms, you know what I'm talking about. It's this hashtag mom life. Everybody yeah. wants to post, look at, we're just enjoying ourselves. Yeah. We're just having the best time, spending quality time and doing our part and whatever. It's all false. Yeah. The reality is parents struggle. Mothers that are at home with their kids, they struggle every single day. They also love it, but they also struggle. And they're not going to talk about that on Facebook because it's looked down upon, to be honest, right. about not loving parenthood 24-7. Yeah, you've posted about that. Yeah, I've posted about it because yeah. I feel really uncomfortable with the fact that nobody else is talking about it because I have those conversations with people in private. So I know yeah. it's, it's yeah. there. And I've seen people posting that I would not, who, who support lockdown, by the way. I've seen those people posting, I'm at my wits end. I'm not going to be able to handle this much longer. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, listen, I have my kids home with me almost all the time. I have because they're still young. So I can handle this better than most people because I'm used to it. But the majority of parents out there are used to their children being gone from about eight to four o'clock every single day. Yeah. That's a lot of hours. And when you are forced to listen to the bickering and arguing and noise and mess <laughs> and clutter and fighting and are, you know, all of this that used to just be in the morning and at nighttime, yeah. you're now getting all it all day long. Yeah. And all and some of these parents are trying to work from home also. And okay, you go do your studying. I'm gonna be don't interrupt me. I'm on the phone. I'm at work, blah, blah, blah. And then okay, you're done. You guys stop it. Okay, you do this, trying to balance and multitask. That is happening seven days a week now. Yeah. yeah. And again, th this was something it took me a very long time to get comfortable with when I first had a child. Mm -hmm. Because I was not expecting that level of demand 24-7. Yeah. And it was it took me years to accept yeah. years until I finally was like, this is my life. Yeah. It took me years to accept. So I am well, more well prepared to handle what's going on now than most people. And even I'm struggling with yeah. it. Yeah. And mm. I'm struggling with it because the little bits of freedom I had have been taken away from me. And we are meant to be free beings on some levels. We are not meant to be cooped up. We yeah. see what happens in the animal world when you take a wild animal and coop them up. They literally go crazy. Yeah. And people, humans, even if you have your regular nine to five and your regular home life, there's still levels of freedom there. And those levels of freedom are what fuel us to be able to handle the levels of confinement. It's all balance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now you've taken away the freedom and you've given nothing but confinement. For many people, for many people, they are at the tipping point. Yeah. They were at the tipping point within weeks. We've already been about eight weeks into lockdown here in the country. 
this type of thing is not something to be taken lightly. And you can imagine the parenting is bleeding over into the experience with the child. So this, we're just enjoying ourselves. It's BS. It's BS. You cannot be with your child 24-7 under these circumstances with the rest of society and be in a place of pure kumbaya contentment and, you know, just making new recipes and baking and doing dance videos. I'm sorry. If people are posting that, they are lying. They're lying to make it look like they're doing okay when secretly they're hiding in the bathroom for 10 minutes to be on social media by themselves where nobody will bother them. I know this because I literally talk to women every day. I know what's going on. Mm. And this is happening for men that are working from home now too. Yeah. It's just a matter of time before people literally start to go crazy. And the, the problem is with kids, it happens sooner. See, adults, we can weather the storm. We're more adaptable. And children are adaptable in some ways, but they're so impressionable. They're yeah, so impressionable. Yeah, yeah. And we're all scared and panicked. Some of us are scared and panicked. So they're feeding off that. I mean, can, you, can I just tell you the number of times people told me, don't be too anxious as a new mother because your baby will feel that. They will feel that. And that's going to change <laughs> yeah. their behavior. So you yeah. need to calm down. And I'm like, you know what? Mm, you. Because I'm not calm. Because it's hard having a new baby. And they're yeah. not sleeping. And yeah. I'm not sleeping. And it's hard. Yeah. So Can you imagine now on this level, the type of panic and anxiety and people, I told my friends the other day, I feel like our culture is basically just one crisis away from mental health disorder. Yeah. Before coronavirus, I have anxiety. I, I, you know, elements of depression in there too. And a lot of people deal with this. We're all just one crisis away from going straight off to the loony bin. I'm telling you. Now we're in that crisis. And now we're in a a way that we've never experienced before. Yeah, We've never so, experienced life like this. Right. And and so I mean all those all those factors really reiterate how important it is to reopen schools. Get kids back to schools that yeah. you know either this summer or you know or after you know after the summer's over and and that's going to be like a, a state by state decision. I mm-hmm. and I I fear that, uh, or it might be, you know, they might keep public schools closed but allow private mm-hmm. schools to open. Who knows? But I, I think it just reiterates the how critical that is. And, and, and that's what I, I love about this article and the, these two infectious disease specialists. I mean, they, they conclude, you know, at the current time, based on the data we have, children do not appear to be super spreaders of this disease. And they, they conclude with governments worldwide should allow all children back to school. Mm -hmm. Um, even even kids who have some you know medical comorbidities, even kids who have some some medical concerns, um, they say detailed surveillance will be needed to confirm the safety of reopening schools, despite recent analysis demonstrating the ineffectiveness of school closures in the recent past. Meaning, there's data to show right. that closures don't make any sense data wise, and they need to keep an eye on this and watch this. But right. they're still suggesting, right. with this article, there's the study. They're suggesting reopen schools, even with children that have comorbidities, even yeah. with children that you might be worried about. Reopen the schools because there's no data to show that what we're doing is actually the right choice. Right. And they even they even mention Kawasaki's. They say you know, the the possible rare new Kawasaki's like association that may or may not be due to COVID does not change the fact that severe COVID-19 is as rare Mm -hmm. as many other serious infection syndromes in children that do not cause schools to be closed. So they're just reiterating, Mm -hmm. we've always had this risk. 
There's always been things like Kawasaki. But nobody was talking about it. Yeah, there's always been things like COVID-19. And we've never had to close schools this way. I don't know if you can say never. Maybe they did some school closures, you know, with other outbreaks, maybe like with polio and smallpox. Like you're talking about decades and decades ago? Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, Yeah, but, but, you know, they, they say, you know, we have data. You know, we have data. We need to reopen schools. And um, so th- this is a, a, a incredibly thorough article. And, and I like the other article that, that you init- that initiated this discussion. Mm-hmm. It's, an, it's an article that um, came out of uh, Ireland. Yeah, there's this uh, fantastic article. It's, it's Evidence Summary of Potential for Children to Contribute to Transmission of SARS-CoV-2. It's from the Health Information and Quality Authority. So this is a group of researchers and doctors in Ireland that, that study, you know, healthcare policy and, and healthcare issues and children's issues. And then they advise the government. They advise the UK government and, and the Irish government about what to do. And so they basically looked at every study on children transmission on, on children transmitting SARS uh, COVID nineteen. And they looked at what the data show, and they concluded that, uh, just like these other doctors concluded, that children are barely spreading um, COVID-19. And they, they, they look at like six or seven different studies. And, um, and I just want to maybe really, really briefly uh, describe each one. It's, it's a study out of China, Australia, France, Singapore, South Korea, Japan, and and Iran. So one study out of China looked at um, 10 kids who had COVID, and only one of those kids uh, transmitted the virus to family members. Only one out of those 10 kids. And uh, it was a little baby that gave it to both her parents, right? But the other nine kids in other households did Mm -hmm. not transmit uh, the virus to the family members. So that's, that's one study. Um, uh, another study showed, looked at 31 uh, household clusters of the disease in China. And um, only 10% of those households had uh, a child as the first case in the household. Right. The other right. 90% mm-hmm. of all those, all those uh, familiar clusters were all started by adults. So the, the third study in China looked at 74 kids Mm -hmm. that were admitted to hospitals and they found no evidence that any of those 74 kids passed the disease to anybody Mm -hmm. around them and their families, which is uh, pretty striking. And Um, you know, somebody might say, well, that's only 74 kids, right? They don't understand that every time you see a study quoted in mainstream media, I just saw one the other day, it had like 12 people in it. Yeah. So like, it's very common for studies to have very small pools and then use that information to represent larger pools the same way they do in like a political poll, where they'll be like, they'll interview like 50 people and say, 70% of America thinks this about the president. This is how they do it. So before anybody wants to criticize, well, this is only a small amount of people that doesn't say anything. This is literally all of the studies that you read on your mainstream media will be a very small sampling, but they don't tell you that. Right. So this is how it's done, by the way. Right. But there there are not a lot of uh, pediatric cases for them to even study yet. So so then they talk about another study. They looked at 419 patients and and, uh, 600 um, family members that got infected by those 419 initial cases. 
they found no cases of infection um, occurred in any children 15 years or younger right. in all those households. And, that, and that's, a, that's a, a much larger sample mm-hmm. size, 419 sure. infected people and 600 people caught it from them, no kids 15 or younger. Um, they referred to the study in the French Alps that right. that that the other authors referred to, but I just want to I just want to reiterate that again. They basically found um, there was one adult who started who who got sick, and there were eleven contacts, eleven family contacts of that one person. One was a nine year old child, right? And that nine year old child caught it. That nine year old child, while symptomatic, all right respiratory symptoms visited three schools mm-hmm. all right attended a ski class like you said that one child uh came into contact with 172 people at the school and the ski class so this um, would be contact tracing if they were doing contact tracing yes. they would literally go to these 173 people that were primary um primary people that would have been secondary transmission possible for trans- secondary right. transmission right. this is how they would do it right. and then yes yeah, so they tried to track everyone down and they found um uh only one additional case of covid was found uh with, with all those people that that that, that child mm-hmm. was uh exposed to so again that that helps support the idea that even if not if, but when sick kids are going to school and when mm-hmm. we open schools, there will be sick kids mm-hmm. that attend. Mm-hmm. The transmission that they're finding based on the data they have, the transmission is extremely low child to child right. and child to adult. And they actually have mm-hmm. studies that show this. Their sixth study uh, was out of Australia, which you had, uh, you had alluded to already. They had um, 18 confirmed cases. Nine were students and nine were staff. This is in 15 schools, all right? So a pretty big study, 15 mm-hmm. schools, nine sick kids, nine sick staff members. Um, they came into contact with 860 other students and staff, and um, they defined close contact as a person who had been face-to-face with one of these students for at least 15 minutes. Right, which is what they just... Right, or in the same room for two hours with a case. So that's how they defined it. Mm -hmm. So those nine kids and nine staff people had close contact to that degree with 860 other people, mostly students. You know, they also found, you know, people who had close circles of friends or people engaged in extracurricular activities. What they found was only two students may have contracted COVID from those initial nine students and nine staff members, only two students out of 863. Yeah. yeah. So it's amazing how, how little the transmission occurred mm-hmm. and, and these data really do support opening up schools. And, and that's what this, this research group does is their whole purpose was to study this so they could advise the, the UK government. And then they, they end with a, with a mathematical model where it's not like a live study, but mm-hmm. there's a mathematical model looking at, in China, looking at the transmissibility among kids. They found high transmissibility among adults who are 25 and older, but low transmissibility among children or people younger than 14 years. And they, they do uh, also state that 
the quality of the data in these studies is not high. It's not highly, it's not like high quality data yet. It's all like preliminary. It's the best data that they could find. And then these have all been published in peer reviewed journals. But based on the data they have, the conclusion is from the small number of published studies identified, it appears that children are not substantially contributing to the household transmission of SARS-CoV-2. And um, and from one study, they see that transmission in schools is very, very low. Um, I mean, that's important to think about. If kids are not trans, they're not contributing to the transmission in households, which is like the place that they would be doing it most because of the close contact. Yeah. So if it's, they're not even doing it there, let alone um, them doing it in school settings, this really is groundbreaking. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I just want to throw, I, I realize there's, there's an additional study, a Dutch study. So these are all worldwide. These are all from, you know, almost every continent. Um, they found that from 54 households that they studied and involved about um, 250 adults and children um, from the Dutch National Institute of Public Health, they found there's no indication that children younger than 12 were ever the first person to be infected right. in any of those 54 families. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the so index again, case. Mm-hmm. Right, that, that's another example of uh, children are not starting these familial clusters and they're not they're barely spreading it within the families and they're barely spreading it at schools based on the preliminary data that we have. So I, sh- yeah. I shared a, a, a cool article, um, which was a study, and this was Thursday, so just a couple days ago. Um, the title of this study is Children Unlikely to be the Main Drivers of the COVID-19 Pandemic. And I just want to briefly, you can see this on my page, but I just want to briefly give you the points. This was the quote from the article, opening up schools and kindergartens is unlikely to impact COVID-19 mortality rates in older people, which is, of course, the thing everybody's worried about, right? Right. According to a systematic review that spanned 47 publications and was conducted by the researchers at Karolinska Institute, this is in Sweden, the paper is published uh, in, in a pediatric journal. So here are the two reasons. One, they said children are rarely the first case in the household. Like we said, this review suggests that children are not the main drivers of the COVID pandemic. This is according to Jonas Ludvigsen, who's a pediatrician at the University Hospital, and he's the professor of the Department of Medical Epidemiology and Biostatistics. So very knowledgeable, very experienced. This is his wheelhouse, you guys. So for him saying children are rarely the first case in a household, that's backed by the science that he's looking at, okay? And the second thing was that the viral load is actually lower in children. Hmm. So that it seems clear that even asymptomatic children can have viral loads, but the data from a small number of studies suggests that the viral load is lower in children than in adults. And according to Ludvigsen, this should decrease disease transmission even further. And this hmm. could be the reason. And he said, case studies have indicated that children with COVID-19 seldom cause outbreaks, and we have seen no major outbreaks among school children in Sweden, despite the fact that schools and kindergartens, listen, have remained open throughout the pandemic. Mm, wow. Okay, this is super interesting. And this was... Um, just published May 20th. So this is very new. Children unlikely to be the main drivers of the COVID-19 pandemic. You can see it on my page. I include the quotes um, from this. 
that said studies show that children rarely initiate the spread of infection in a household, um, even though they can transmit it. They're not transmitting it in a household. They're not transmitting it to each other in a way that causes outbreaks or infections, and they're not the drivers of this pandemic. Mm-hmm. And again, um, the focus here is basically schools should be able to stay open, and they have four months of data now during a pandemic to yes. prove that this is not this was not the wrong choice. Right. So this is something to pay attention to uh, when we continue to look at data. You can check that out on my page. But you know, it's a big talk. I mean, it's a big even yeah. just children as it relates to COVID goes into lots of subtopics. We've talked about two different ones mm-hmm. in two different episodes episodes recently yeah. here. And and this is a discussion we should continue to be having. Yeah, I, I think the take home message here is, yeah, schools are going to reopen. And parents don't need to panic or fear, you know, that scenario. Yes, COVID-19 will occur in schools, it will spread a little bit, but it's not going to spread far and wide. And, and we will all kind of gradually develop natural herd immunity to this. And, and, you know, based on the data we have, and these are a lot of medical experts that are talking about these data, that we can reopen and we can reopen without fear and without panic and possibly without a new normal at schools. You know, right. we don't have to separate by, oh, yeah. we don't have to do this. Well, none of, none of this and, discussion is talking right. about yeah. what the new potentials are for the U.S., which are yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. That can be a whole separate uh, podcast. Yeah. So, but these are talking about regular schools reopening the regular way and how life can go back to regular normal. Yeah, because all these studies, uh, the ones in schools, those schools were it was it was during normal school time. You know, mm-hmm. they weren't. This wasn't like socially distanced schools that they were studying. And it wasn't it was, two hours a day every other day with staggered right, classes. Right, right exactly. And masks. Like the, and, yeah, exactly. So, yeah. so I think we're all going to be okay. Well, hopefully you found yeah. this interesting and thank you guys for bearing with mm-hmm. us on both facts and uh, Passion. ideological <laughs> discussion yeah. slash rants uh, on this topic. <laughs> it's important. Hey, we should be caring yeah. about our kids. So yeah. I bet you all can yeah. agree to that. And so we will catch you soon, hopefully with some more guests coming up um, on the podcast mm-hmm. and some more interesting topics, including asymptomatic transmission, which we'll yes. have to cover. Aren't you so excited about that, I Dr. Bob? hugely excited. <laughs> Let's do it now. Can we do it now? No. <laughs> <laughs> so okay. thanks for joining us again on the Vaccine Conversation with Melissa and Dr. Bob. The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as medical advice. Always consult your healthcare professional for information on vaccines and infectious diseases.